You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Well, folks, it's summertime and it's hot out there. Sizzling, parching, blistering. Why, you could darn well fry an egg on that sloper. It wouldn't that be delicious. But we're going to climb anyway, aren't we? Because without climbing, well, our flimsily constructed self-identity would be sucked away by real-life obligations like so much froth from our iced chai lattes. And of course, Black Diamond wants you out there climbing and glowing and ignoring your email inbox too. And their summer apparel is here to help. From the lightweight, sweat-drinking tech tee to the breezy women's talus tank. From the leggy valley shorts to the breathable alpine light pants. And of course, the majestic Alpenglow sun hoodie, when the Alpenglow becomes the full gaze of the burning eye of Sauron on that last slab pitch to the rim and the cooler of beer in camp. Yes, that's a Black Canyon reference for the diehards. So don't cower inside just because the sun is stalking you like the devil itself. Let Black Diamond equip you to climb on when the heat is on. Go to BlackDiamondEquipment.com or your favorite air-conditioned local shop to check out the summer garb from the climbers at Black Diamond. Well, howdy, partners. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm a Yeti Yonder water bottle, and I hold the very key to life right here in my belly. That's right, water. Hydration. Why, without my tasty preference, you'd have popped your clogs long ago, buckaroo. Now you might say, well, big deal. I got my own skanky big mouth scuzz bucket water bottle clipped to my pack right here with a locking carabiner, of course. And I'd ask you one simple question. How many holes? That's right. How many holes does your water bottle have? You see, most water bottles either got one big hole that makes the water dribble down your chin when your buddy gleefully taps the brakes while you're swilling, or one small hole that makes it nearly impossible to dump in your electrolyte protein drinkable veggies or whatever other snake oil you think might make you climb harder. That's right, I'm a Yeti Yonder water bottle. I'm lightweight, made from 50% recycled BPA-free plastic, and here's the kicker. I got two holes, one for filling, one for drinking. You might be thinking, yo, yonder, how's that even possible? Well, check me out at Yeti.com or your favorite local outdoor retailer and see the magic for yourself. All right, I got to giddy up. Be well, drink well, and stay wet with a yonder water bottle from Yeti. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that? out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. 
And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is July 19th, 2023, about 10 a.m. Mallorca time. That's right. And this is episode 267 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with alpinist Mike Gardner. And you heard that right. I'm sitting in Mallorca. Specifically, I'm in a closet, a very hot, sweltering closet in Mallorca on a family trip. Yes, I will be doing some climbing. No, this is not a climbing trip. And parents out there know the distinction between the two. (laughs) Or maybe you have a non-climbing significant other and you've gone on a trip where there's climbing around, but it's just a little bit out of reach. Anyhow, not complaining, having a great time, getting some climbing done. Also working for you people on my vacation. I want that noted in my year-end review with HR that I was working on vacation to keep the enormous ship on course. But since it's hot and sweaty in here, let me get to it. Mike Gardner is an Exum guide and an alpinist making a name for himself and his crew. We talk a little bit about his crew in here up in Alaska, doing fast ascents of some of the biggest routes up there. Most notably, I guess, in the last couple of years, him and Sam Hennessy and Rob Smith climbed the Slovak Direct on Denali in 17 hours and 10 minutes. So just a big day out, which came right on the heels of Matt Cornell Jackson Marvel, Alan Rousseau climbing it in 21 hours and 35 minutes. And it sort of appeared that these guys had raced out there to better Matt Jackson and Alan's time, like some sort of rivalry. But the fact is, is that they're all buds sharing beta and Mike, Sam and Rob stood on the shoulders of those guys, you know, having done the route in even better conditions just after finding some remnants of the other ascent allowing them to go faster. So not a rivalry, just a bunch of guys with the same ideas working together up there on the Alaska range. And we talk a fair bit about that in this interview, which makes it sort of an addendum to the Steve House interview from a few months ago. Because of course, Steve House, Mark Twight, and Scott Backey's, you know, sort of smashed the state when they did that route in 2000 in 65 hours. And this was the first time that that record had been beaten in 20 some years. Hello. Is it in here? Oh yeah, here it is. Sure. Why are you working in my closet? Because <laughs> it's quiet in here. <laughs> I'll be down in a minute and go swimming with you. All right, a little cameo from the normal child. Anyhow, where were we? Oh yeah, we're talking about the Slovak. Anyway, those are the details. We don't really get in too much to the details, uh, so I want to set that up what happened on the Slovak last year. But there's so much more going on in this interview. As usual on the EnormaCast, we don't really get into a laundry list of Mike's ascents. If you want to see that, just Google him. He's an Arcteric guy. There's some information out there. But yeah, there's a lot going on in this interview. A lot. All right, let's get to it so I can get out of the closet, go swimming with my boy here in Mallorca. Man, it's hot out there. If you want to go rock climbing, do not come to Mallorca in July. Although that water is going to feel nice. 
as long as I don't belly flop. Let's do it. Mike Gardner. Imagine a time before the Sportiva TC Pro, before the solution, even, dare I say, before the Mira. It was a libidinous time of skin-tight lycra and the shortest shorts ever conceived. Meanwhile, Sportiva was already at the height of their powers even then. Imagine, if you will, Ron Kauk flexing in his blue and fuchsia megas. Francois Legrand floating in his ridiculously tight kendos. And Heinz Mariocker, um, Mariockering in his Mariockers. But focus now. Steep climbing was being invented and Sportiva was there at the front, pushing standards and fashion to the moon. Now, Sportiva is celebrating those heady years with a revival of their Climbing to the Moon logo and a special limited edition TX4 approach shoe in the fantastic colors that defined an era. The TX4 remains legendary for both its ruggedness and its climbing power. And now, Sportiva is building the TX4 on a resolvable platform to get even more life from your favorite approach shoe. So check out all of Sportiva's decades of innovation at Sportiva.com or your local shop and step to the moon in a pair of better-than-ever retro TX4s. I had Steve House on, which is a long time coming. And, and that guy's like, you know, this almost mythological figure in a lot of ways in alpine climbing. But you guys came up, right? This crew, specifically talking about the Slovak Direct, right? Um, from last year. Was that last year? Uh, yeah. All the media around that and knowing some of you guys, um, knowing you and knowing Jackson, I don't know the other dudes, but um, tell me about this like core crew that you you go up and, and you know, I think several seasons, um, our Alaska climbers together, you guys have objectives that mix and match through the partners and things like that. So tell me a little bit about this crew coalescing. You have these same goals, same attitudes, mesh really well together. Where did that come from? Where did these, you know, tell me about this kind of group coming together over the last few years. Essentially, Sam and I have been a unit, like a core climbing partnership for quite a while mm-hmm. we started climbing together six or seven years ago but known each other for longer is he a guide he is a guide as well he works with you at exum uh he works for jackson Hole mountain guys oh god but yeah we've always kind of worked for competitor companies and it, oh, okay. it's just better cool. that way <laughs> right yeah yeah but uh and then it seemed like alan and jackson were kind of climbing together at first a bit up there um and we you know you'd spend a lot of time hanging that's like 95 percent of alpine climbing is right. hanging out and um so we and I, th- I think that's kind of like a key element and thread that brings us all together is like, because of all of the hang time that occurs, you got to kind of have the same attitudes or be kind of of the same nature and be keen to just kick it with that person more so than climb with them. Like right. if you're just going to rope up with somebody, that's one thing. But if you're going to spend like, you know, 90 days with somebody or whatnot and only... 40 hours of that or something is going to be distracted by the act of like intense climbing and the rest of it's just going to be bullshitting then like yeah you should probably <laughs> be get along right yeah and then immediately that synergy kind of arose in in just hanging in base camps and whatnot um and then yeah so then i think matt started coming in the mix more up he was a climb partner more of jackson's i believe and mm-hmm. then the three of those guys started climbing a bit more together um 
but yeah, we've always had uh, a similar vibe and just a similar kind of style, if you will, mm-hmm. for an overused term, a, right. an approach to the right. climbing that we've been doing. And if it wasn't, you know, that we were all queuing up for the same objective or different objective or like kind of this fun, almost like banter, like trading blows, like right. they'd climb a route one year, we'd climb it the next year and like, they, or we'd climb or vice versa, you know? Right. And um, so, yeah, I think it organically just arose where we all got along really well together and mostly just through that that resonance and just wanting to hang and see things a similar way and not take it too seriously, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that what you just said about the not too seriously, because again, going back to, to, um, house to Steve, you know, there was so much weight to what those guys did and they were famously, especially because they were hooked up with Twite in person. It's like the sweetest guy, but his media is like heavy. Right. Yeah. And it was all about like punk rock and, you know, smashing the state and like, you know, we're great. You, the rest of you all suck. Kind of a kind of a vibe, which Steve admittedly was like, I had no part in that. That was all Mark. <laughs> but nevertheless, like this weight to it, and like I mentioned this to Steve, like there was there seems to be this kind of like almost more of a I don't want to say chill, but like a a little bit more joy to it all that you guys sort of come to it with, which is interesting in in light of what we'll probably end up talking about in this in this podcast. Um, in your life, but like you go up there and yeah, you guys are kind of light and you get stuff done or you don't, you know, you were just telling me about being in Talkeetna for like 14 days straight, just festering, festering, chilling, yeah. <laughs> chilling. <laughs> um, and then when it happens, it, it feels as though like, I don't know, did, did you get what, yeah. am I, am I onto something or are you guys like in your, in your um, you know, snow caves, like listening to Nine Inch Nails, just like Mark was back in the day. <laughs> Not and, quite, and, although you know, just totally like grumbling. <laughs> totally, I think there, there, there's probably a lot of truth to that, and just the way that we, basically, the way that we balance our climbing. You know, I think there is a lot of severity to the act of climbing sure. huge yeah, routes that's with. The, that's the thing that's like kind of interesting. So yeah, with keep, like untethered, without mm-hmm. baby gear, like that's a pretty serious endeavor, and yet it's also like a very meaningless act in the grand scheme of things in the, in the whole scale of the world. Right. So like to approach it, or I guess it's more about how you present it to the world, less so how you feel about it. Like when you're in the moment, it's like, this is a serious thing we're doing, but the more levity I feel like that we can bring to the act of it, as well as just like the outward projection of these things, just the more fun it is the way you, how you think about something is how it's going to feel. Right. So like, uh, that joy aspect of it or just the kind of levity I think is important on two parts. One, it's just like important not to take yourself too seriously, right? Cause we're just like jumping into these self-imposed suffering realms that like we don't have to be doing and to hold that on some kind of pedestal or whatnot seems a bit bizarre. And then also it's just like, like you said, we're just a crew, good buddies hanging out in the mountains. And that's a very like Sam and I have had this conversation before where it's just like, if it's not fun, like, why would I go on a trip? You know, I don't have some kind of personal duty to be like, I need to keep climbing or I need to be an alpinist or I need to like one up last year with this year or whatever else there is. Like if the, sure, there's a part of that where it's like, you have goals, you have objectives, right? Like, I guess there is an element to this that I would like to round out where it's like, there's a paradox there as well, which is we're 
incredibly motivated and goal oriented in some capacity. We're not just full chill, like whatever it happens, yeah, happens, right. you, you know, right. like you got to yeah. have a balance there yeah. and preparation and all that. And I think that's an important aspect where like, maybe we come across almost cavalier sometimes by, but that's far from it, right? Like we try to be incredibly calculated and figure all this stuff out and do as much research and like prepare ourselves as best we can beforehand. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's partly why I, I climb with other people sometimes, but I like pretty much exclusively climb with those guys simply because we get along and we approach the mountains and just try to have fun. Well, yeah. I mean, you guys are all in similar places in life. I think it it feels right for now. I mean, everybody moves through these eras, but um, you know, there's there are these famous partnerships in climbing. We we all lionize, you know, the the Skinners and the Pianas and Hudon and you know Max Jones and whatever else is out there. But th- that's why I think it's kind of cool. It, it feels like you've like expanded it into like this posse, and and the whole Slovak thing. You know, again from the outside looking in, I felt like there was probably this desire almost in the media you know, to pit those two ascents together against each other, right? Like, right. cause you know, uh, who was Jackson with? With Alan and yeah. Matt. Yeah. So those guys did it and then it got done faster, like a couple weeks later. And I think, you know, in any other media source, like if it was the NBA or something, you know, they, they'd want to create this, like those guys were trying to one up each other. And then I knew from the inside looking you know, you were probably like personally sure, there's like amongst each other, like, but yeah. nobody was going to go out to, you know, the, the media and be like, yeah, fuck, you know, we fucking toasted those guys right. or whatever. But um, the other thing is in what you're getting at, I think is really interesting is, is just that of like it, what you do is an extraordinarily serious endeavor to cut those tethers, to, to be out there that far without, you know, what was considered the necessary gear to make sure you were going to be okay. I mean, you've built on what Steve and those guys did, but I was wondering how much like you were just saying, like, let's, let's have fun or like, let's not like influences your style in a way. Because when I started thinking about, you know, a 17 plus hour ascent or whatever that was, like, I was like, that's like a, just a big day that most any climber, who climbs big roots. Let's, we were just talking about the black Canyon. We're actually in Ridgeway just, just to buy the South rim of the black, like a 17 hour day. You're going to encounter that with, with right. like you're a normal dude who goes climbing a lot or a normal woman who goes climbing a lot on big roots. And I was like, Holy shit, that's like kind of amazing. Like again, you read about Steve and those guys just like staggering, like yeah, you know, yeah. just like basically like their bodies are decomposing because they've been out so long without, and I'm like, 17 hours is kind of chilly, especially because it never gets dark. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we'll go back to my question is like, is that like a calculation of like, well, it'll be a lot more fun if we don't do 65 hours. A hundred percent. No, a hundred percent. Because I have also done like 72 right. hour climbs and right. like, it's, it sucks. Right. And big packs suck. And so that's the whole, the whole reason that there's a whole light and fast deal. It's like, it's a stylistic thing, but also it's just like more fun. And more enjoyable, obviously, I say this a little bit tongue in cheek, but like, you know, in some regard, it's safer, right? And the weather in the last range changes pretty rapidly. And so to whittle it down and be like, all right, if we're only going to be exposed to this, you know, this hazards for 24 hours or under 24 hours, then like, that's kind of safer than taking 
six days worth of food and fuel and try to be on the route for six days when weather forecasts up there are good for like 24 hours at best, if at all, you know? Right. I mean, that's Mar- uh, Jackson told me that as well. Like, and I hadn't really considered that, but when you think about, you know, these tragedies in, in, you know, big ice and snow climbs, a lot of times it's that people get pinned down totally, or the conditions change and the route conditions get very dangerous overnight a storm, you know, snow loading, all those sorts of things. And you think about it and that's really a lot of, of the sort of tragic stories we've heard. And so it's like, if you can thread that needle that quickly, it takes a lot of that calculation, you know, out of sort of the risk management mix. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's obviously a spectrum with regard to like the risk management and like there's, there's like the land of extremes in either camp, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to be on something for a month or try to be on it like, for 12 hours and take absolutely nothing like you need certain level of equipment and redundancy and things like that but um that's just all part of like the calculation and approaching an objective and like the fun part of figuring out a like how can we do this safely and what will this look like and then b what's the best possible style we can do it in and i the important part of that is like we can do it in you know best possible style like that's fully like polish night naked himalayan 8000 meter peaks with nothing right but that's like the one end of the extreme that, you know, can lead to its own pitfalls or the other end of the spectrum, which is like, you know, tons of shit, tons of time, fix ropes, whatever else, and try to approach the objective with the right tactics and also like with the most respect for the mountain and the style, you know? Yeah. And the interesting thing though, what I was just trying to get at was that you know, with you guys, it doesn't feel like there's these statements being made. And in the history of like, especially the history of alpine climbing, you know, it's sort of a history of that. Like I have done this as, you know, to show what can be done and I have planted my flag. And it's, I feel like it goes back in my mind to like you guys going like, well, what can we do because, you know, to benefit us and how we climb and enjoy ourselves Versus like, what can we do to like set the Alpine world on fire and, and like change the way people think about climbing? I mean, is that a calculation? Do you want to be in the, in the, in the, you know, Alpine climbing hall of fame for like changing the world? Or is it just like, I want to go climb the cool things I want to climb? Definitely the latter. I couldn't really give a shit what people think about what we climb and how we climb it, you know? I mean, on on a banter level with some buddies, like in some beers in the right. back room riffing, yeah, we'll like tear each other's ascents down and be right. like, oh, you could have done this or you could have done that or like, you know, but I'd want to steer away from that in a public view because right. for one, it's all degrees of hypocrisy, really. Like yeah. if I start touting this amount of style or I did this, then I got to be held to that standard, which I'll hold myself to that standard and I'm happy to be called out or whatever else. But also like sometimes you you need to, do a certain way to like make it through a climb or whatever else. And if that like degrades your style a little bit and then it sets the Alpine climbing world on fire in the other direction where they're like, Oh, you're such a hypocrite because you climb this thing in 17 hours and you're touting light and fast. And then the next climb you go on, you take like five days. And it's like, no, that was five days of food and fuel is what needed to be done for this. And that's what needed to be done for that. And just want to have fun with my buddies. You know what I mean? Like that's the bottom line. Yeah. But what about the, um, the danger? You know, again, like you can, you can goof around all you want, but then when it, you know, you're roped up and you start climbing, what are your calculations in terms of, you know, that kind of style, whether you're soloing, whether you're roped up 
whether you're placing any gear, um, you know, maybe take us through like whatever strategizing you think about in terms of that. And you can, you know, use an ascent maybe as an example where, where you had to make some of those choices. Yeah. Like more with regard to the technical aspect of how you, yeah. I mean, mean, because people are like, well, fuck dude, you know, it seems really dangerous what you're doing or whatever. Sure. You could call them unorthodox tactics, mm-hmm. <laughs> potentially, you know, but um, it's all a calculation and a calibration of the equipment you're going to bring, the tools you're going to bring, giving yourself margins, knowing like really intimately part of alpine climbing in that realm and that light is really knowing every bit about the pieces of equipment that you're bringing and like what their limitations are and stuff like that. So using like mini tractions to simul climb and stuff like that, which is not like groundbreaking by any means, you know, but yeah, I think on the Slovak, we only pitched out three pitches and the rest we simul climbed and very minimal soloing only like snowfields and stuff like that. Um, but like those kind of tactics and paring things down and, uh, using like fairly skinny ropes and stuff like that. And yeah, there is a calculation there where we're in town we're like looking at like, okay, if we bring like, this diameter of rope, what's the likelihood of us falling on it? And, you know, we're climbing three dudes simul climbing on, on one rope. So we're doing like a cow's tail situation where the two followers are tied in, you know, a few meters apart or whatever the, the, the terrain dictated. So when we're in town, we're looking at the diameter, like what's the likelihood of somebody falling? What are the sharp edges like? Like, you know, what's the likelihood of this rope failing? And you think about all that, make a choice and then like eye that up to how much food you're bringing and be like, well, the weight difference between this rope and that rope is like two candy bars. So like maybe we'll throw those two candy bars out and like bring the bigger rope if you think that's an issue. But you know, like that's the kind of calculation I'm talking about. Like those equations where it all kind of comes down to weight and then like the tactics that you're using, you know, like simul climbing with three guys on one rope for a long ways is maybe a bit of an unorthodox tactic. But I think also like, Knowing the terrain that we're in and all of our abilities and things like that, it was seemed to make sense. Yeah, I mean, it's all. I mean, a lot of it is about knowing your abilities, and there's so much in climbing that I think we do. You know, based on this like worst case possibility, you know, and I think like you know, even like free soloing, let's say, is a calculation that I've always said. Like most climbers who get into at least into trad climbing and big group climbing have a moment in their life where they free solo and you make these calculations. And one of the calculations is simply like, there's like almost no way I can, I'm going to fall on this. Right. Like, you know, most people, when they free solo, they free solo well below their limit. You know, that's kind of what makes some of the other free soloers famous is that they go so close to it. But, you know, it's just like, I would have to be someone just pulling on me to make me fall off of this thing. Right. And, and that's the calculation. You know, it's just like when you're driving a car, there's, there is some alternate universe where your steering wheel just fl- comes off. Right. Right. And, and it's probably happened. Yeah. But we generally drive a car going 80 miles an hour, understanding that our wheels aren't just going to fly off, and our, <laughs> you know, totally. even though it's a possibility. And, and I feel like with you guys, you climb so much and you, you just have this very, important understanding of your abilities and that becomes a calculation if right. you will it becomes part of the mix but i, I mean i'm on, I'm on a tangent no i think there's of, something to that right. but i i think everything's got to be checked right and mm-hmm. what i mean by that is like sam's i always quote him on saying this like 
he, we're really good about when we finish a climb, like we sit down and we like look th- and people will be like, oh, you blazed that thing or whatever. You know, it's, it's not all about speed, but whatever, like great style, minimal gear, climbed it in 17 hours. And we'll like sit down and be like, where were we most exposed? Where did we have any like mishaps? What can we improve upon? And like we do that after every climb. And the goal is always to like learn from that process. And he'll, the quote that I always think of when it, stuff he says is like, oh yeah, it worked out but it didn't have to, right? And like that a- aspect of it, it's like, yeah, there's worst case scenarios and you can't always plan for that. But also you recognize that there's a tremendous amount of luck involved with all of this and you're you're stacking the cards as many as you can in your favor and then recognizing with it, what I mean by that is just a certain degree of humility when you walk away from it. It's like, instead of being like, yeah, we nailed it and patting yourself on the back, it's like, I intend to do this for a long time and like keep climbing and enjoying myself. And so how can I constantly be improving and, and we can increase our safety margins by learning from every experience instead of just being like, yeah, the climbing world thought it was sick that we climbed the Slovak in under a right. day. It's like, well, yeah, but whatever, like what could we have improved upon? Right. Where were we most exposed? You know? So have you ever had the wheels come off and like had to catch the two guys on the end of the rope and shit like that? Not to that degree, but okay. the wheels have definitely come off the bus from time to time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, give me an example. Well, yeah, more so with regard to just uh, like changing weather or whatever else. Like my first big climb in the Alaska Range, I did a route on the father and son's wall, which is the, kind of this like more remote aspect of Denali. It's a 6,000 foot wall and had only had three ascents. And we, uh, yeah, we dropped in on it after acclimatizing for like couple weeks on the mountain and it was early and the weather forecast was meant to be good. We kind of threaded this line between like just the right amount of stuff, but it was also one of my first big climbs. So I didn't really know like, like, oh yeah, one sleeping bag, that'll be great, but we won't bring a tent or, you know, just these calculations that I didn't really understand <laughs> what they all meant yet. And uh, yeah, we just got hammered. Like I fell in a crevasse approaching the wall, bottomed out and it took like a 30 footer and thought I tore my knee before we even started climbing it. Got on the wall and then 15 hours into it, the weather changed. It was blowing 70 and nuking on us. And we spent 72 hours on the wall with one sleeping bag, just shivering it out. And like the whole time I was like, all right, like this is it not working out, you know, but we couldn't just back down anyway, kind of a complicated area terrain wise. But I came out of that being like, ah, I'm pretty psyched on this. You know, like I think that there's, like I want to just learn everything I possibly can about how to climb in the style and continue to evolve and grow. And uh, yeah, I mean, the wheels come off from You're time like, to what time. else you got? Oh, <laughs> not so I much. I just survived that. that. What else you got? Yeah, totally. Give but me I, some more. Yeah. <laughs> you can't take me down. Well, I realized I was like, I was carrying so much extra shit right. that was not helpful. Right. You know what I mean? And right. like, maybe if we'd been faster or whatever, like right. just the the various calculations, but like my mind immediately went to, this is super friggin' cool to put yourself fully immersed in the environment, in right, the elements. Right. Like, I love that shit, you know, right. and just ride it out. All right. Well, let's talk about you because I want, I'm always interested, as people know from listening to shows, like, where, where did, you know, alpine climbing is a very, you know, self selected group of people. You know, let's just say you're a, you're a mountain guide, you've, you've guided Denali a number of times only a few self-select to step into climbing on their own and doing big alpine climbs. And then coming to the point where you're standing on Denali and you think that wall that's been climbed three times, I can climb that. No problem. Like, let's go, go give it a try. So I want to talk about like 
where that came from. Um, one of the big things in your life is that you um, grew up the son of a mountain guide. Um, so when did you know mountains come into your life? It sounds like it was probably almost instantly. Yeah, it it was in terms of my exposure to them, but my actual enjoyment of them and my choice to be there wasn't until I was probably 18 or so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I got exposed to it super young. I think I was like ice climbing when I was six or whatever else. And I went to 6,000 meter peak with my dad when I was eight. And like, I've been exposed to big mountains, not just like top roping at the crag, you know? Um and but it was it was much like anything else, you know. It was like a trade that your father did. That you're like, well, that's what my dad did. Like, I'm much more interested in like hanging out with my buddies and going skateboarding. You know what I mean? Like, and it really wasn't until much later in my life where I kind of came to it on my own terms. And my dad was really good about never forcing us to, or not forcing, but even like it was like it's here if you want to. You know, sometimes I'd have a really good cl- time climbing with him and enjoy it, and other times I'd be like, no, nah, I'm not into it. You know. So wait a second, let me go back. Okay, because. <laughs> You went to a 6,000 meter peak with him? Yeah. Like, what was that about? Well, so he was guiding in the Himalaya, like these college trips, and they the college paid for the family to go. So I did three trips to the Himalaya when I was eight, nine, and 10. And um, they there was like this balance where it was a college program, right? So they would do some homestays and a service learning project. And then there was this mountaineering element of it and climb a peak, just like mellow trekking peaks, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I went to a peak with them and I I didn't go to the top, but I was certainly like above 5,500 meters and brought my snowboard, was like snowboarding around. And so I got like exposed to altitude and climbing and the Himalayas. I mean, that's really interesting though. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people listening to that like, oh man, I wish that had happened to me. No, but, totally. But you were just along for the ride. It was just like, yeah, we're 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 going and it, you, you're going to like it or you're not. I mean, but what what were you doing? Like- you were probably there for weeks on end. Yeah, a couple months. Yeah. I, I, I don't take it the wrong way. Like, I'm tremendously grateful for those experiences and they weren't lost on me. Like, those are some of the most transformative experiences in my life was spending time in the Himalaya and Asia. And since then, like, I've tried to go back every few years, whether climbing or not, and spend time there because it had a huge impact on me just hanging out. And yeah, it was like, I was fully immersed in it. Like, I remember I spent like a week once in like a, Buddhist monastery when I was 10 or something and just eat whatever was going on. I'd jump on board. I tried to be like a, a porter one trip. Like I would just latch on to different aspects of the culture and be like, whoa, this is what I want to do, you know, fully malleable young kid. Yeah. But I mean, were you like, Ugh, fuck, I can't wait to get home. No, no. Oh, I loved it. Oh, I basically, oh, okay, like cool. I hardly went, I was like trying to drop out of regular school when I came back. Cause I was just like, my mind was blown, you know? I I actually, this is a bit of a ridiculous story, but I remember we got back from one of those trips and I was infatuated with like the porters, you know, that are just carrying these huge loads with their tump line. And so I wanted to do that. And so I was just like, I wasn't even hiking or trekking with the group. I was just like cruising with the porters. There was this younger porter kind of took me under his wing. He was like 16, I was 10 or whatever. And then when we came back here to Ridgeway, just for fun, I like would load up a huge duffel bag with ropes and all sorts of shit from my dad's basement and like put on a tump line and just walk down the road. And and I remember some car pulling up and I was probably 11 or whatever. They're like, are you running away from home? They were like super concerned, you know? I was like, no, this is, this is my idea of a good time, which is why I was probably destined to be a Denali guy. Just... <laughs> Just carrying, just walking slowly and carrying ridiculous packs. It was like my idea of a good time at like 11 years old. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one one of our sort of like our connections in a way. I mean, we we met a couple years ago, um, but it's sort of because of Hayden Kennedy, because of your relationship with with um, his mom and dad, uh, Julie and Michael, and that brought me to to um, through a roundabout way to be hanging out in your cabin in the Tetons last or two years ago. Um, and I'm I'm like thinking about that story of of uh, HK being also sort of, you know, psyched, but also like, this is my dad's thing and it's not really my thing um, for a very long time. But it reminds me too, because he got into skating, he got into all these sorts of things. And you're here in Ridgeway, you know, just south of Montrose, Colorado, Montrose, Colorado. I always say Montrose. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of the locals way yeah, to say totally. it. But, but uh, you know, so tell me about your life. It, it sounds like at some point you did kind of like, you know, you were just saying like, that's my dad's thing and I'm going to do my own thing. What did your own thing look like? Um, as far as that's concerned. Yeah. Mostly skateboarding. Like right. I got a skateboard when I was in kindergarten and I still skate to this day. And between, you know, when I was in kindergarten until I was 18, I lived and breathed it. Like I was trying to drop out of high school to just like chase the dream and move to Southern California and skate all the time, you know? So in terms of just uh, my own passions and stuff outside of family life and school and whatever else that was it like i lived and breathed that but of course like i grew up in ridgeway colorado and there was not even any pavement then when i was growing up like now there's some pavement here and the main roads but there wasn't even like ass maybe the asphalt through the middle of town but that was it so we'd like skate the dirt roads or go skate culverts in a farmer's field or like build jangus ramps or like beg borrow hitch or whatever to montrose to go skate but yeah, so that was kind of like a funny aspect of it, of like growing up in a really rural, pretty much ranching oriented town, loving skateboarding and and all that. But then, yeah, I mean, just like general shenanigans that you get up to in the small towns and whatnot. That was like hanging out with my buddies and ripping around in the mountains. That was what I was all about. And I mean, I would enjoy climbing with my dad, you know, something that we would do like I, I say it like I didn't do it, but I would probably right. go climbing like once a week or right. once every other week with him, you know, <laughs> but he would have to sometimes bribe me, you know, be right. like, oh, if we go cragging in your way, like I'll we'll get some pizza on the way home. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. I'm down. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't like some, I'm like, I'm almost like trying to set up some angsty kid who's like, fuck that shit. I'm going to do this. Um, but it doesn't sound like it was like that. No, no. And, no. but the, it was almost, it was funny. It was kind of like the inverse, uh, we had the inverse effect on each other. Like my dad didn't really push climbing on me. But then he picked up skateboarding because that was all I wanted to do. So he learned to skate at like 50 years old. Really? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> we were talking earlier about your buddies giving you a hard time for getting hurt, doing something you shouldn't be doing right. when you're like a mountain guide or climber. Yeah. He destroyed his leg skateboarding with me at the Montrose Skate Park. Like really bad break. His whole tib fib exploded and uh, he couldn't guide for like two years and everybody was like what the fuck Gardner? <laughs> like you, you're skating with michael he's like yeah but i almost had it. he did he approached it it was so funny he wasn't like yeah i shouldn't be doing that anymore he was like the thing was he was wearing sticky rubber approach shoes right so he went down this big hill and he dropped his foot off to slow down and the sticky rubber caught and everything happened upright but anyway his response that was your fault you should have known better i should have known better totally dude <laughs> but that was his response to everybody being like you can't skate anymore he was like no 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 i just got to get some, some vans shoes, yeah. and like oh i'm psyched man and he's still freaking in a cast saying this you know right on. but that had a big effect on me too where it was like climbing skating what you know like that's mixing it up and following the passion and the inspiration in whatever 
you know, chapter of life, if you will, or doing it all and blending that has always been like, that was an example that he set up for me, right? Where it was like, you can climb if you want to. That's what I do a bunch of. And then, you know, but you can also skate and like that brings you the same amount of joy that it brings me to climb. And we could like meet each other in the middle. And that has played a large role for me moving forward of being like, just because I'm a, you know, mountain guide and professional climber, or whatever now, doesn't mean like hang up the skateboard because it's silly and too dangerous, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that story about your dad because I remember when I was in at Western State and Gunnison, actually not too far from here, um, a bunch of my climbing friends, they built a skate park, you know, a little, little skate park. And a bunch of my climbing friends who were in the late 20s, early 30s who had been skaters as, as, you know, teenagers or whatever, um, were like, oh, we're going to get back into it. And like one by one, they all fucking wrecked themselves. Oh, totally. Like, <laughs> totally. It's like, yeah. So it's pretty fascinating. I mean, um, but I mean, and also it seems like you inherited, you know, your general athleticism um, from, from your dad or from your mom and dad too. Cause it's like, you're, you're also a, a pretty impressive athlete in a bunch of different realms. Yeah, no, both my parents were, you know, like, collegiate athletes to some degree if that's something we can inherit down the road you know um but yeah we've always were geared towards sports of some kind and you know but more so like if you're psyched you know and i think that goes back to what we're talking about earlier Mm -hmm. of like climbing is not some some job or like feat or something to prove to the world it's just a process of enjoying yourself you said that you actually kind of got into the mountains on your own terms um at 18 you know, the sort of buried lead here is that your dad was killed in a, in a climbing accident um, when you were 16. Is that right? Yeah. Um, you know, and this is, you know, this is hard to talk about, I'm sure. So just take your time. But he was going up to the Tetons in the summer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And were you joining him up on those trips? Yeah, absolutely. As well? Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, your life up there at, at Exum Guides, and then we'll lead up to yep. to the hard part of it. Um. Yeah. So I was up there every summer. Like that was something that we did as a family but then as time went on and my sister got a little older so we would we would normally spend the whole family in that cabin that you came and visit us it'd be my sister my mom my dad dave whose place we're at now and his son adam all in that cabin and i loved it man like that that place aside from this the mountains but like the creek there was like an idyllic childhood right so i would spend two or three months a year every year i was like took my first steps in that cabin you know Um, and then when I, like a little bit later in life, you know, when I was 14, 15, my sister's five years older than me and she was kind of in the mix with her own scene down here in Ridgeway and my mom and sister would come up less, but it was something still that my dad and I shared. Right. So I loved being up there and I, there's the paradox there from earlier where I was like, Oh, I wasn't into climbing, but I freaking kind of loved it at the same time too, where like I would go to work with him sometimes and like just coil ropes and just be psyched to be around. And aside from him, and it it was. And those eras, like, and there's always just these different iterations, but it was such a legendary group of folks living in that Guides Hill there. It's like, you know, across the way, it was like Kim Schmitz, Rolo, Dave Carmen here, you know, Rick White, like the list goes on, but just like tackle, like legendary folks working at Exum at the time. And also what, but I didn't know anything about that, sure. like their accolades sure. or whatever, but just like, if I couldn't imagine a better way to grow up, which would be to just have all of these life lessons from folks like that, you know, where it's like just things about swimming in the Creek or whatever else, or like 
you know, I remember like Rolo was like cutting my or cutting my hair, and that's why maybe probably why I still rock a mullet, you know, because he right. was like, yeah, he's Argentine. He was like, this is what this is the haircut. Yeah, exactly. You need, I'm you know fucking up I mean? from Argentina. Exactly. This is what you're supposed to I look like. I was like 14, you know what I mean, and it's stuck ever since. <laughs> the soccer, the Argentine soccer. Cut. Totally. But you know, so, so anyway, <laughs> that's like, ridiculous. That's so awesome. Yeah. Like, well, I I felt it, man, because we visited you. I'd never been to Exum, you know, like I've known multiple Exum guides of all ages and one year experience to, you know, lifetime experience. And I felt it, man. And, you know, you were just like, yeah, this is where I live. And, you know, we, my dad built this cabin and stuff, but like, I, you know, I've known enough of the history that I was like, all right, here I am. This is, this is cool. I know all these, you know, these legends that have gone through this cabin and, and, or these cabins and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, you didn't know that, but I, I, you know it now. Yeah. 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 No. And it's, uh, it was an incredible place. Like it still is. I still live there. I still hang out in that cabin. Yeah, um, it's, it's and amazing. it's yeah. cool. So like I've done every summer of my life in the Tetons. Um, and you know, I learned a lot about guiding. I was, it was like, take your kid to work day regularly. You know what I mean? Like I would go meet him and whatever, scamp around on the rocks. And so I did really like that aspect of it. And then, yeah, he passed away when I was 16 on the Grand Teton. Uh, and that, that was wicked hard of obviously for a number of different reasons, but for one, it really took the wind out of my sails for interest in the mountains, you know, and maybe not for the obvious reasons, which was, I didn't want to go climbing after that or go into the mountains in that capacity. Like I was still skiing, doing other things, but not because I was afraid of the, the risks right, or the consequences. Death, yeah. But because like, the only climbing partner I had had in my life to that point was my dad. And so I didn't have the, the like capacity to have another partner that wasn't him. Like that was just too hard, you know? And I think in some capacity, that's maybe like still a bit of my orientation towards climbing and partnership and whatnot is like, it's really important to me who I climb with. Like, I'm not just psyched to be like, I want to climb this route at all costs. Whoever will rope up with me. It's like who I climb with is more important than what I climb always has been. And I think that maybe stems from that a little bit. Well, God, I mean, you're a 16 year old boy. Like everything about that age is hard anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I taught that age at in high school and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a rough time. So, I mean, tell me about the, the, you, you said like 18 maybe was more of a, of a baptism back into climbing. So tell me about those two years. Yeah. And you're, and you're in, uh, your dad's George Gardner. Um, he was he guiding or was it a different so, type of accident? Different type of accident, and it's, it's and we don't have to go the no, details. I'm, I'm just curious. I'm happy to talk about it. Like okay. at this point in my life, it, I, I'm it actually brings me a bit of joy to okay. talk about him and share. And right. you know, no, he what sounds I mean? like an amazing person. Totally. Yeah. And at this point, however many years later, it's been like it's crazy how the memory fades, right? So to bring him up more regularly, like people are always like, "Are you comfortable? Are you cool talking about?" It? And I I am because it brings me joy to to bring up those memories and like. And think about that time in my life, as hard as it was and as fucked up as it was, it, it's a good thing, you know? Like, it's, I'm at a good place in my life with it all. So anyway, yeah, he, um, he was a big, like, nobody knows about my dad's personal climbing life because he was, like, the chillest dude on the planet, right? He taught school here in the, in the winters, and most people knew him as, like, the cool outdoor ed teacher. Not the fact that he'd been on like the first American expedition to Kachinjunga and like all this other, you know, like crazy climbing stuff. And that he was 
way into free soloing, you know? And I kind of learned that now after the fact, but that's how he died. But like, I didn't know that he was, he would like get off from school and like go solo some ice climbing your A and then like come home from dinner. That was just like his outlet, you know? Which is, that's a thing, you know? Like people are soloers and that's like as normalized to them as can be. And I, I have a really interesting relationship with soloing for that reason or for a number of different reasons, which we can get into at some point or whatever. But anyway, so yeah, he was guiding a trip and he was up at the lower saddle. Clients went to bed for the night and he went up and soloed a route that he'd probably done like 150 times, you know, or something that capacity. And then something was just different. Like, like he literally, that was his routine, you know, and was pretty common in those days, you know, like just talking about the caliber of guides and climbers that were in that, in the mix then, you know, he'd like, put your clients to bed and then you'd go solo some route and what a nice way to spend the evening, you know, the sunset. But anyway, um, he fell off of the, the direct durance is the true name of the route, but there was like a recorded 60 mile an hour gust of wind during the time, whatever, like we can speculate till the cows come home and I don't necessarily think it's relevant like to me, you know what I mean? But it's also like a little chalk in the memory bank of just like, you know, worked out, but it didn't have to, or like shit happens, you know, or whatever else. Like you can solo route a hundred times and have it so freaking wired and then like fall to your death one day. You yeah. Know? It's interesting. You say that in light of my comment earlier about like, no, I mean, totally. Yeah, I mean, it, it happens. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, and I only say that. And like, mm-hmm. it's just an interesting thing because with the exposure of like free solo and stuff mm-hmm. like that, the hardest thing about that is that every single client as a, when you're guiding them, it's like, Oh, have you seen free solo? You know, and like, and it's like, well, I got a pretty tricky relationship yeah. with solo, and like, or how do you feel about it? It's like, and I've solo something. You know what I mean? Like, right. I'm happy to get into it, but also like, yo, how much time you got? And like, right, you exactly. know what I mean? Like, it's like, <laughs> really, like, how ready for you? Are, how ready are you for this? You know, like, where do we start? Let's go back right. to 2008. Right, <laughs> we'll right, start there. Right, and, right. Um, so he didn't come back. He didn't come back. Yep. And that was, yeah, like that was pretty fucked up. You know? And you were there. I was there in the in the in the cabins. I mean, you were there. I was there. Yeah, wow. totally. And I mean, like, it, there's a lot there. You know, mm-hmm. like it's uh, in some regards, it's having that. I mean, it wasn't the first person to have died in the mountains f- for me. You know what I mean? Like when you grow up in that life, it's like it's it's the reality in some capacity. But that was definitely like a bigger blow than ever to obviously like. He was my best friend talking to everything we just talked about before, like skateboarding, climbing, surfing, whatever. He was my man. Like we had a really special bond. And so, yeah, I was there and like woke up in the morning and mom's like, she just said like some poetically whimsical, like your dad's one with the mountains now. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. So your mom was there too still. Yep. She was there. Was your sister up there too? No. Um, and then, uh, yeah, they flew him out of the mountains and there was a, yeah. And then like dealing with like his body and what, like I had a very visceral connection to my father's passing, you know, in a, like a pretty graphic physical way that you, you might not get if, I don't know. Anyway, I'm not, there's never this, any comparison of like how some tragedy emotionally affects you. I'm not trying to bring that up at all. It was just like, no, I, my experience was like, right. because it's now something like I still climb that route, like in the summer, I'm on that mountain, you know, a couple times a week, whatever. So I have, I like continue to have this connection with this place. That's like, 
been the most joyful experience of my life and the most fucked up experiences of my life. And I love it, but it's, it's complicated. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, look, when I visited you, I had no idea of all this stuff and it, I mean, it was a really intense, I mean, we were there for like 24 hours and to this day, I mean, it's two years later we're we have this like, that's how we started conversations. It was like, yeah, that night was rad. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, you know, we drank a lot. But also, like, <laughs> this this story was revealed to me in these physical things in your cabin and you filling it in. Right. And it, it was, you know, because I had no idea. And then there was some point at the in the night where I was like, oh, shit, like, that's his dad. And his dad was killed on, on, on uh, the Grand Teton. And I was just—it was just fascinating the, the 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 connection you have to it because you're still there, you're still in that cabin in this physical mementos in this, you know. It, it was a pretty fascinating evening for me, and, and I mean, we had a lot of fun too. Don't no, get me totally. Wrong. It wasn't yeah, yeah. like super heavy, <laughs> but it, it's it's impacted me since then. Um, I think about it all the time, but I also think about your relationship with your father and how special that was. Um, in you know, we can all compare our relationships with our fathers. It's you know, it's like a storied, you know, thing in all movies and literature, like sure. men's relationship with their totally. fathers. Like it's, it's, it's everything. Right. And, uh, it's, you know, so I remember feeling like, God, that's really sad. And then I also remember as I learned more about it, I was like, wow, that's really amazing that you still have this, again, this physical connection to this place and, 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 uh, these memories. Yeah. So, I mean, could you maybe well, t- well, talk kinda, a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, that dovetails well, and I think, into what you were asking earlier. It was like, what was that time afterwards like? That 16 to 18, which was to say, I, it was confusing as hell. And it was I was like a quite a troubled kid in like every other capacity of it, right? Like, was still like right in the throes of high school and whatever else. Well, that's what I mean about being 16. It's like it pulled the rug out from from underneath a time that's already... You know, you're finding your identity. You're, you know, it's it's just a difficult time, and then just have the rug ripped out is. I mean, I I have this like vision of you, in you know, some movie like just tumbling through this abyss kind of a thing. Yeah, you know? I mean, I wouldn't say it was that dramatic, but but, but it, you know, know, I'm, it, it I'm, was I'm more, to some I'm degree. Like, I'm the guy that does that shit. On <laughs> <the show>. Totally, <laughs> totally. But it was to some degree. Right. Like I don't know, people around here, like now we're in my hometown right now, and they'd probably be like, oh yeah, no, Gardner was like seemed to be a pretty good kid but like in some capacity not everybody knows the whole story or like what i was fully going through because i was like i was pretty damn good at like faking it right what i meant by that it's like i was playing varsity soccer like captain of the soccer team getting good grades like get back to it no but i was doing all that shit and i could do that like pretty handily but also i was just like being a complete degenerate derelict on the other hand right and like operating in a bit of a lawless land where like yeah, like my relationship with my mother is wonderful and everything else is great and I have a good home life. But like my dad and our relationship was kind of like what brought me into the world in terms of my courses of action and like how I, what my plan was, like what was next. And you know what I mean? Just like he gave me the roadmap and then there wasn't one and it was a bit of a lawless land for me, should we say? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and I had all this energy that I don't know what to do with that like enter in a big part of my life was free skiing, like competitive skiing. And that was where that whole time frame came about because there was a bit of time. I was just kind of getting into it, skiing 
competitively and like whatever else right before my dad died. And then he did. And I like, I had this wonderful mentor, coach, buddy, partner, Jason Russell, who was out of Telluride. And he like took me under his wing in a big way. And all of a sudden, like the mountains were open to me again through a different medium. I shouldn't say open to me again, but I was like having those experiences that I would have in the mountains with my father, but like via skis, you know? And in like these big environments where you feel small and you're, you know, you get to let go of all the emotional baggage and shit and like focus on the moment. And, and so that was kind of where that time frame took off. And it wasn't necessarily about like the competitions, whatever else, but like there, that was like a good proving ground. And also it, it became an excuse for me to like fuck off from school, basically, <laughs> like because I was a competitive skier and I was doing well and I could like show up for class Monday, Tuesday, and then like, oh, I've gotten a contest Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, and like continue to live in that bit of a lawless land you know um so that kind of defined that era of my life for me in a big way it was like winners i was throwing myself into this skiing and competing on the world tour and um or the junior world tour at that time frame and then later the world tour but yeah just like having this form of self-expression that was just pretty good for the otherwise would have been like angsty kid you know who just lost his father and like doesn't know how to go back into the mountains and there was slow moments i guess what i'm getting at is like kind of what brought me back into like xm and climbing and guiding there was like subtle moments in there where that community up there in the summers i was still going to the tetons in the summer and working at the boat dock there and like sleeping in my truck and you know um then those guys that were living around us and all those other cabins, they were like always keeping tabs on me, you know, and like, and never pushing going into the mountains or whatever, but just offering things up, you know, and like being there and checking on me. And that was key, like super key. Cause yeah, I was like 17 living by myself in my truck and like working a job and whatever else. And like having those mentors and those, those figures in my life played prominently. And then I think the next year with one of the guys who, was on my dad's recovery. He invited me up and we went and like climbed the complete, which right. encompasses that route for the, for is, my first time. Is that the ascent you talk about in, in the Alpinist article? Yeah. The way, yeah. Yeah, totally. And so anyway, like I was starting to connect in such a different way, like where before I was George's son, right? And like they were in a different plane, right? They were like the same age as my dad. Well, not the same age, but like, they're all doing this in their life and I'm the kid. And right. then all of a sudden the like mascot that, or whatever, he's not yeah. there in the middle. And so now I'm interacting with these folks as like a climbing partner. Right. And they're treating me with this like integrity and this respect. And it really like clued me into kind of like what had been missing and like how I could con- continue to experience the mountains and come back to something that was really a big part of my life and find that again. And so I was kind of like getting in interludes of that. And then, still skiing a bunch and I was not that keen on college or anything like that. But again, like I said earlier, like I was decent at school and I got like a scholarship for a year. So I was like, oh, fuck it. Like I'll go to, I'll go to school. But I was also like doing There's well skiing. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Like <laughs> I went to college for all the right and wrong reasons. You know, I was like, I chose Montana state cause it was like sure. scary within 15 minutes. Right. And I thought the campus was pretty sweet. Had no idea what I wanted to study, but I had a scholarship for a year. So I was like, go figure it out. And yeah, within the first semester, I had like rearranged all my schedule to be like classes on Wednesday and no other days of the week. Right. I'm skiing most <laughs> days of the week. And, but I met like all these 
it was kind of outdoorsy college town. Sure. Everybody's like, oh, dude, you want to go rock climbing? And it was like, all of a sudden, climbing was this cool thing amongst college peers. And it was hilarious where I was like, oh, yeah. They're like, oh, do you have like a rope around? I'm like, yeah, fuck, I got a rack, dude. I got like I all this so shit. Many ropes. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it was like, <laughs> you have no well, idea. And how I was many like, ropes I, have. I was cool because <laughs> right. I had like a, a, a climbing rack and we could go rock right. climbing. We're not cool, but right. like, yeah, you it was just in. something it was a, that yeah, 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 it was like something that people want peers to wanted in. to do, yeah. and it wasn't again like just changing the dynamic of these relationships, right? Where it's like buddies that I was partying with on the weekends or whatever also wanted to go climbing. It wasn't just peers of my father's, and anyway, it just became a much more f- fluid relationship with the mountains and climbing. Where I was like still skiing, still doing this, all of a sudden get more into rock climbing, having this relationship with these other guides that were kind of teaching me, you know, how I could you know, see that track. And then ultimately that led to me dropping out of college after just that year and just going like full into it. And yeah. Well, let me back up a little bit because we have this whole, you know, you're a 16 year old. This is a tendency for 16 year olds to be extraordinarily self-centered. Um, and you know, you have this weight put on you. Let me, if it's okay, I can ask you about your mom. Like, you know, she's obviously dealing and suffering in her own way. Um, but she has to be there for you and for your sister. Although your sister's older, she's kind of more almost an adult at that point. I imagine her, you know, okay, I got to be here for these kids, but in her own world of sort of pain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. My mom was there for us 100% and showing up. I think though, we create these narratives in our head after stuff like that. And so my own narrative that I created in my head was pretty detrimental for those relationships for me, which was that like, I was like, all right. Like literally when they brought his body into the meadow, like I was like, I didn't like cry at all. I just stoved up and I was like, all right, like I gotta like show up and like take care of shit. What, whatever that means. Like I have no idea. You know what I mean? But but that was like on the cusp of manhood. Sure. So so you probably were like, I've got to step in now and be this man and not show my emotions and like, totally. Which was completely mountain climber. You're like, that's what we do. Right. Yeah. Which was completely famous for it. We're famous for fucking sucking it all up when someone dies in the mountains. Totally. Which was completely the wrong tact and (laughs) track and totally (laughs) obvious. right? But like more so like, I mean, with regard to my family, right? right. Where I was like, Certainly. all right, like I am, I got to handle all this shit now. What, there was no shit for me to handle. What am I? I'm like a 16 year old. I got no idea about like finances and whatever else like plan. But I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I did kind of like sh- show up in a lot of those ways. But that, that narrative that I told myself kind of made it hard for my mom and I to have like a re- really deep relation. I, my mom and I have had a great relationship through it. It was just that like I had this vision where I was supposed to handle shit and take care of her and be there for her and my sister so they could grieve. And I didn't for years, which set up a bit of a like a tense dynamic. In a, I mean, in a positive way, like we still loved each other. We're still there. I'm still living in her house. But also, like I said about the lawless land thing is like, I was kind of like just doing my own thing, you know? And she was like, of course there, but we didn't like, regularly like hey how you doing like let's talk about dad you know like i didn't want to and like i never went to therapy i never dealt with any of that shit and like and my language skills like theatrical skills around when people would ask me how i was doing and whatnot i could like i could just spew off all the right answers 
to show like some you level of emotional, acting, right? yeah, some level yeah. of emotional depth that I was processing shit, but I wasn't, you know, it's was just like, oh yeah, just say all the right things to kind of get people off your back and then just like keep aimlessly plowing ahead into the abyss, you know, which is like kind of what I was doing, you know? All right. So I have a feeling that these two narratives are going, are, are going to come together somewhere. Okay. Is this true that the climbing and the grieving and the processing do they do they dovetail together? Completely separate. No, I'm just kidding. no, no. They, they, <laughs> I mean, what happens? So you're you're you're. Let's go back because I interrupted with talking about your mom, and that's not fair because you know I've never met your mom. But I'm just curious about the dynamic because no one expects a, a you know a 16 year old kid to just be like, well, yes, I think I need therapy, and we should go and process this together. I mean, that's like an absurd thought, and I just wonder, sort of like her own processing of like, well, do I hands off? Do I, do I push him towards it? Do I, you know, yeah. I would assure she's, she spent nights thinking about this stuff. Yeah, no, totally. You know? And I guess we just, we all were just in our own worlds right. a bit, you know, like what was helping her process her own emotions and grief was her deal. And what I was doing was my deal and my sister. And like, since then we've, we've like in the last few years, really, we've all come together and like a lot more communication about it all. And it's wonderful. And I feel like, in a, like, that's why I'm happy to talk about it. Cause like, I feel in a really good place about it now. Like at 17, 18, not so much. I was like, <laughs> kind of like, like, fuck off. If you want to talk right, to me, that right, sort of thing. Right, like, right. I, or I'll just say oh, yes, like, I'm fine. all the right words. Yeah. And then you can be like, okay, cool. Or whatever. But He's like, in the mountains now. It's great. We, you know, exactly. We went over this. He's right. one with the mountains. <laughs> right. You know, like what more do you need to know? You know, I'm, I'm chill. Not doing what he loved. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which is like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. It's, I know you have a problem with that because it was in your article. Well, yeah, yeah. It's not that I have a problem. <laughs> not with a problem with it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's all good. Sorry, we're laughing. This is what you do when you process any sort of traumas you you gotta laugh about it. i'm actually like tearing up as well yeah while we're laughing so all right so back to the thing you got these guys again these 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 guides these people who've lived this i mean fucking jack tackle is is there like you know they've dealt with this before for better or worse they maybe you know damped it down and but they're there for you in a sense and they're they're introducing you back to the mountains and they're becoming peers so let's finish that thread. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think not to be left out in that conversation right. is Dave Carmen, whose house we're in right now. Yeah, we're, we're like, sitting here right now. We just met Dave. Yeah, I just met Dave. Fantastic moment. Was he figured very prominently in my okay. life in that capacity where he was just like retiring from guiding right about the time my dad passed away, but also had this incredible perspective about like you know, like he still climbs a little bit and whatever else, but for somebody who spent like from when he was 17 until he was 60, let's say like living and breathing, climbing and guiding expeditions, like kind of what I'm doing now and like kind of on the other side of it had this incredible perspective to share with me throughout that whole journey. So anyway, yeah, guys like that, that are giving me great advice, get me back into it. But also with like why I bring up Dave is and Mike Ruth or Hound Dog is also figured in that as well. Another guy there, like giving me the perspective of what a full commitment into this life looks like when you're like 50 or 60. And so as I'm, as I'm gaining interest in like, just dropped out of college, you know what I mean? Like, like that part of like, okay, I'm going to start like climbing's pretty sweet. Maybe I could become a mountain guide. I kind of already am a bit predisposed towards that. I love it. 
the, I'm also getting this like ta- cautionary tale as well, right? right? Which was pretty cool. And I think that's that's like one of the biggest gifts that I was given with that, hanging out with that crew as well, where like unbridled enthusiasm and inspiration for what this life can amount to. And also like a little bit of a cautionary tale of like complete devotion towards the craft to a point of like not having any any other interests or anything else left when you eventually like n- nosedive off your you know high of being at the top of your game you know right yeah it's an interesting pers- i mean the fact that they had that perspective is fascinating um because i mean that's the whole lifelong guiding thing is is that's that is the cautionary tale of right. your body can't do it anymore what else you got yeah and and i think you know, Axum and Jackson Hole are almost like the most famous for that because it's such this position, you know, their your housing is provided. It's like the yeah. community is there. Like, I can't wait to get back to the summer totally. because all, and it's like, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was kind of wondering, like, they grew up with you. They, they, all these, these guys up there, mostly guys, um, they saw you grow up, right? They saw you from a little baby, basically, some of them anyway. I mean, was there like direct, like, you know, let's sit down, let's like put the arm around you and, and talk about this thing? Or was it more of like, we're going to get on and, and we're going to include Michael in this and uh, and see where he goes? More of I just mean, did include. you have like the heart, heart, heart to hearts with any of these guys? I'm not that, you that direct. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, a couple of hound dog, like we went out. Who's hound dog? Mike Ruth. Okay. He had like the big bushy mustache. Right, I don't right. know if you remember him, but yeah. he... Like at, right now at right. XM, he's kind of the only, well, not the only, but of that generation left. So anyway, I like figures predominantly because I'm still working there and whatever, hanging out. And so we still share that, that whole era, you know, that connection to that time frame. But it was more so just like very informal and inclusion, an aspect of inclusion or like an invitation rather, you know, like, like I said, like Andy, the, the one of the guys who took me on the that route for the first time the complete exam after my dad had passed was like just just call me up and was like hey and it was the anniversary of his passing right, right. i was like want to go climbing it was just that right like right. as simple as it wasn't like put the arm around like all right kid like this is you know you gotta get your yeah, shit but he knew together. what he was up to totally it was like <laughs> hey you want to go climbing you know just like a simple invitation um i mean but that's like really that's really interesting and important that he knew what he was up to and that he thought this is the time and he's ready. And I mean, do you know what I mean? Like you want to say it was casual because the way he approached it was casual, but it certainly couldn't have been casual in his mind. Right. Um, you know, I don't even know if maybe he checked with other people or, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. it's a pretty important moment for someone who cares about you to do something like that and to take the chance. Right. I, I think probably there was more involved in that than I realized right. now reflecting on <laughs> right. it all. Like, but in the moment I was just so caught up in all my, my own shit that I was like, Right. It, stuff was like more coming right. at me than I right. was like reflecting right. on it. If that makes sense, you know. Well, I, I'm. I mean, I am asking you to like. Now we are, yeah, we yeah. are reflecting, and yeah, it's just totally. if you think back on it, like he didn't pick that phone up casually. Yeah, I always tell this story where I, I, um, you know, I spent like ten years painting houses, and th- this is like a a little bit of a strange analogy, but I always joke that I was painting houses because it paid for trips. Yeah, and then like the the stints of painting houses would get longer and the trips would get shorter as I was like running out of money. 
Right. And then I was joked that like one day I woke up and I was just a painter because I had no trips. <laughs> and uh, there was this like realization of like, oh yeah, uh, this is what I do now. So let me ask you that. I mean, mountain guiding is way more interesting and fun than uh, than painting houses, which is where the analogy falls apart. But like, <laughs> tell me about like this process of walking down this path knowingly, or was it just like, yeah, this is, you know, it's summer again, I'm going to go do this. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, this is what I'm doing with my life for now. You know, were there mental conversations with your dad? I mean, you, you're, you're sort of like living this legacy of what he was doing as well. You finally sort of accepted that I'm also going to do this. So tell me about that process of, again, like waking up one day, you're like, okay, I'm a, I'm a mountain climber and I'm a, I'm a mountain guide. There, there was a lot of other things going on there. Like I, I idolized guiding in some capacity and guiding, but also these, these labels also only tell, tell half the story, right? Cause the do the, the people that I'm referring to, like I wasn't psyched on them because just because they were mountain guides, it's like they were, you talk about surfers as like a water person versus just like a surfer, right? Like they live and breathe the ocean. You know what I mean? The folks I'm talking about and referring to, they leave and live and breathe the mountains, right? Like they're guiding to then go on their next trip to the Himalaya to then like go to Pac- Patagonia to then, you know what I mean? Like, so, so that was the, the, the like the caliber or I don't want to say caliber as if like those, no, were that, the, it's a, it's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that, that was like the aspect <laughs> or that approach that I right. had idolized through a lot of my life. Right. Where I like Chuck Pratt, like taught me how to change the oil on his old Volvo there. Like Chuck was always hanging around or whatever. Like talk about somebody who like lives and breathes rock climbing and you know like there there was this passion like living with this passion is basically what was imprinted on me from these folks you know and that was what i i was like i want to live with that same passion you know and through that iteration of like coming to terms with the tetons and that like it was a good place for me and i could be at xm and i belong there like that was this whole like roundabout other chapter right where it's like I still feel like a bit of imposter syndrome being an ex or no, I shouldn't say ex but like being the Tetons thinking of this storied legacy and being like, do I deserve, you know, I mean, but that's all shit that everybody thinks about anything. If you just depends if you want to go down that road in your head, right. Stacking one against the other. But you know, once I kind of like accepted and embraced, like that's what I was doing. It was more just an embodiment of like what was manifesting for me when I was living passionately, you know? And it wasn't just the Tetons, a big part of it, which, it has always been hard, even to this day. Like, you know, I'm in my thirties and like, there's folks who still work in the office who've worked there and they've known me since I was two years old. And they like, call me like little Mikey, you know what I mean? And they're like, <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, like I'm fine being called little Mikey, but right. I'm like, I'm also like, a, you know, I'm a prof- professional, you know right. what I mean? Like, right. like, oh, little Mikey's going to take you up the Grand Teton, yeah, you know like, what I mean? And you're like, you lose the little Mikey hey, yeah, part totally, you know? in front of the clients. And it's chill. But like a big part of the progression for me was going to Alaska uh-huh. and getting outside of that umbrella of being like George's son, you know? So I went to Alaska when I was like 20, 21 for my first personal trip. And fell in love with it. And that's actually, I met Sam Hennessy. We were on the same glacier with different climbing partners, first trips in the range, both of us, we met. And that was like the beginning of our part, like budding partnership. We hung out for years before we climbed. But I come off that trip and I like, we didn't climb shit. We like hung out and, you know, did the hang part of alpine climbing. But I loved it. And I was like, I'm going to stay in Talkeetna, go to the, 
the local guide service here and just like brew coffee and sweep the floor until they hire me, you know? And they did. And I guided a Denali that year with the owner, Colby Coombs. And creating my own scene in Alaska was a huge part of that like acceptance. This isn't just following in my father's footsteps or like continuing to kind of, because that is a challenging aspect of continuing to be there, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Where, yeah, like who who are you and what's your own identity? As yeah, a exactly. And, and I like think that. that's why Alaska has played so heavily in my own personal climbing and whatnot. Is like that's where I first showed up on the scene where nobody pretty much like knew any of the backstory, right. and I just like worked hard, improved myself to be a valuable asset just sheerly through like who I was then, and then furthermore with like climbing and stuff like. It wasn't just like climbing in the backyard range that I knew well. It was like exploring and all this, you know? Yeah. I mean, we talk about climbing and comfort zones and that's like such this, this big part of progressing. And, you know, again, I earlier talked about like what made you think you could go climb the father and son's wall. Well, I'm sure you didn't know whether you could or not, but you were going to try and like move on into this other comfort zone. And I can imagine another person or or even you might've had a pension to just you know, stay in that village there with those cabins and, you know, guide your life away. Totally. So like it needed to take a step to, to get out from underneath that umbrella and and embrace to kind of find out who you really were. Absolutely. And I think that like speaks a little bit to the evolution of where I'm at now with it is like, I still hang out in the Tetons. I still do some guiding at XM, but less so like guiding is kind of taking on different shape. I'm doing less of that now. And, and, and this, like that expanding of like, continuing to kind of keep, just keep it moving forward, you know? And like being there for that amount of time in the beginning was just so important for me to have like a connection and a memory with my father, you know? Like when I go climb the Grand and when I hang out with all these folks that knew him so well, it keeps that so well alive for me, you know? And I think at this point, I'm like sort of shifting into a different space with it, you know, where I've like, I've not closed a chapter or whatever, but like come a turn on it where it's like, all right, like I'm, I'm at a pretty good place, like emotionally and physically, whatever, mentally about growing up without a father from when I was 16 and figuring all that out. And like, I'm, it's not the same. I've like processed it. We never do. Right. It's this ongoing hamster wheel of like the way emotions work. They're cyclical, Right. right? They like turn a corner and then all of a sudden you might feel so strongly 10 years down the road when you felt nothing three weeks or not nothing, but numb or, you know, anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, you get older and like, I'm such a softy. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, I'm, I mean, I've been like kind of choking up during this interview and like, I would never have done that in your 20s. So yeah, <laughs> your feelings will certainly evolve. Yeah. Um, I think you literally like, my wife tells me like I have more estrogen than I did before. <laughs> less, obviously less testosterone, but um, nevertheless, like it, it will totally evolve. But I want to go back to that again. My feelings when I met you and we hung out, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like have, you know, I'm a romantic it, despite my, my, my surliness um, <laughs> that comes through on this podcast and on the other podcast. I'm, I'm definitely a romantic in in the sense of like, thinking about the greater meaning of things and the symbolism of things. And I just was like, I mean, I was occasionally in this reverie when I was at your house um, of like, wow, look at this place, you know? And, and aside from what happened, you know, with your father, like you just mentioned Chuck Pratt, like he, he, 
passed away before your dad did, mm-hmm. you know, so here's another person that you knew and admired. And, and I mean, all, all the stuff that's gone on there, it was pretty heavy. But again, back to this idea of you having this physical connection, I just feel like that's, uh, you know, although it's, you've pushed through all these, these emotions, it's, I feel like it's just such a healthy thing when you talk about like these memories fading, um, yeah. you know, I just feel like it's, it's something else to have these, these physical manifestations of that life you had with your dad in those years that led up to, to when he passed away. No, absolutely. I, d- I don't mean to take away from that at all. I think that that Ask. No, I don't think you have. I think you've honored it. Yeah, certainly. I just mean in terms of saying like where I'm at now, because there was a part of me, like I said, that was part of the going to Alaska thing was like, would you just like, you know, it's almost like this, like, is my story in climbing? Like right now, whatever. No, I shouldn't say right now, but like, do you want to just interview me for your podcast? Because I got an interesting story about being a second generation mountain. Maybe. Yeah, I do. Like, <laughs> but there, there's more to that. And I'm, I'm like bringing this up and you know how my style, yeah. but I'm just like joking with you right now and saying that where it's like, yeah, that's a part of my life. You know, it's in- but also like what I'm really passionate right, right. about right now is like kind of hanging it out there on big roots that like totally puts it in a different perspective. And I, you know, I just put my foot in my mouth by saying like, we're hanging out there being right. really calculated on something. Yeah, right, right, no, 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 but yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and, and like, that's a part of it and it's not all of it and it ebbs and it flows. And I think like I, for a bit, I struggled with it a lot, you know? And it was like, I, I needed to honor it so much. It was like the only thing that mattered in my life was like being close, feeling those feelings. And then I was like, Whoa, like I like dropped out of college to just like come back and like feel these emotions. I got to like get on with my life, man. (laughs) Like I got to like have a plan, whatever, you know? And that kind of, turn on its head again a few years later where I was like, no, fuck it. Like I'm passionate about this. Like to, to live with passion. Some people don't get to do that. Like that in itself is worthwhile. You know, I don't need to have like a big schematic game plan of like 10 years is what I'm going to be doing. Or, you know, like I don't have to move on from something if it feels good right now. And it's like filling my soul and I'm psyched live it up, you know? Well, let me say this. Like I, you know, again, I'm, I'm there and I'm like meeting you and I'm like putting all these things together. And I was like, we actually talked something about, I think we talked about like the enormous cast and like you doing one. And I was like, I remember being in my mind, I'm like, no, 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 he's, he's not ready to do it. <laughs> like I just met this guy. Like, and it's interesting because I think to me, and I know you've done a lot of incredibly rad climbing and just like most most climbers, there's this thing last year again, the Slovak that got this this media, and you know I'm sure you're like, yeah, but you know last year we did this, and this year we did this, but everybody's focusing on that. But it, but that to me, I was like, oh, okay, in my mind, I was like, okay, now we know who this guy is as a climber in the kind of larger world has this this thing attached, and that led me to the point of being like, well, let me see what else he's been doing, and and to be honest with you, like that's when I was like, well. I think I would like to talk to him now. And, and so I don't know what the Slovak, that whole little bit of blip of media, and it has everything to do with, right. you know, Twite and well, House and stuff means to you guys, but it popped you into this world of like, okay, these guys are like doing something special, even if you had been already doing it like under underneath the surface or without the fanfare. Totally. It I'm, gave you just a to- little bit of fanfare. And I think you almost were like, 
I know Jackson was anyway, like a little bit like, oh, okay, everybody. Well, down, and we all know? were. And that was the funny thing, like, because we're all tight homies. Like, we right, all wanted right. an expedition like three right. months later together, like all right. all of us. And the funny thing to me with that whole Slovak to bring back to that is like, you know, Sam and I's first climbing trip together right. in 2018, we made the second ascent of Light Traveler, which is also, Who cares? On, also in the South of Illinois. <laughs> no, dude. And I'm just kidding. But like the whole reason when, like maybe when you're talking to Steve and it's right. like, well, what led, like that, the reason it's that's important to me is it almost seems like the Slovak happened in this vacuum, you know, where people are like, well, you know, not much other cool climbing has been happening in the last range. And I was like, like, yeah, like it's been, we've been firing in the range for that. No, I don't say we, like the Royal we, like people have been getting after it for the last 10 years in the last range. And it, that's the funny thing to me in Alpine climbing where to me, it's such a personal expression of like where you're at and what you want to do. And I have, I never wanted to climb the Slovak because it had notoriety. I wanted to climb it because it was a cool route, you right. know? And I almost, I almost didn't want to go, climb yeah. it because it had notoriety. Right. Like in 2018, Sam and I were thinking about climbing it. But that year, Colin and Rob were setting up to do it. Gilbert and Chantel were setting up to do it. And Sam and I were like, fuck, we don't want to, like, you know? And that's when Westman was like, you guys should go climb Light Traveler. Like, that's, like, arguably has a harder grade and hasn't been repeated. And we climbed that in, like, 31 hours. And we're just a couple of Denali guides, you know? Like, <laughs> and that's that's how I would prefer it, you know what I right, mean? But right, then all of a sudden, right, then, right. then, like, people are like, oh, well you know, what were the conditions? Did Alan and Jackson and Matt like leave you a trailer? What I was like, who fucking cares? Like they literally like sent us their beta. It maybe if we had done it first, we would have definitely sent them their beta the year before Jackson and Alan and me and Sam were at the base ready to climb it. We accidentally didn't know that. Well, we knew, but like we all met at the base and we're like sick. We'll all launch at midnight. You guys take the first block. We'll launch at four. They'll launch at midnight. We'll launch at four. Like we were all going to climb it together the year before. So this whole like media blast of like the best time is it? It's like it's not freaking track and field. Like, right, right. You know, like it's yeah, just. But see, you don't. Uh, the reason I'm like over here laughing because you don't get. Uh, unfortunately, for better or worse, is you don't get to. You don't sort of get to dictate no, what totally. the symbolism is, and that's the thing is that you know you you tapped into this this like you know this sort of epicenter of the light and fast thing which was this ascent yeah, yeah. along with i mean the important thing about it or one of the important things about it was mark's article yeah which yeah. has become whether you like it or not no and so no it's you're, like, you're that's the kind right. of cool thing and and so you know yeah you get to do your thing it's like an, i mean uh steve talked about being alpinism being an art and you know you can i i love it you can roll your eyes at it whatever you want to do but He's right in that sense of that you do something as a as an artist and you put it into the world. Yeah, you know you do not get to decide how everyone reacts to it, and you can try. And I think it's a it's a fool's errand, but that's what you guys did. You you did this thing that was for yourselves and you put it into the world, and then you unfortunately don't get to control how we all like jerk off on it or whatever. You know what <laughs> well, I mean? I, and so yeah. it's like, but it also felt to me like media wise and everything else it was like okay you know this is this this thing that's making everybody wake up to what you guys are doing and in that sense i think it was a positive not wake up and like oh we're gonna you know shower you with money and fame but wake up to like the step that you had made and you know you may end up in some sort of pantheon alpine climbing hall of fame or whatever it is but you guys broke a little mold with that because it'd been 
almost 20 or 20 years, uh-huh. you know, since anybody had done anything or had bettered what they did, right. whether you were trying to or not, you, again, you don't get that, nar- you don't get to have that narrative. No, we totally. Do. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And you just go about your business. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of your thing. You guys just go about your business. Right. Yeah. So. No, it's, it's well said in that capacity where right. it's like, you do your thing, you put it out there in the right. world and you know, by doing it, it gets out there in the world. Mm-hmm. That's my whole thing is like, right. I not a huge fan of like self promoting your sure. own. Sh- I mean, I shouldn't say I'm not a huge fan because then somebody can call you out and be like, well, then why do you have my foot? Yeah, no, let's, you know, not but go, let's not go down that road. I'm not, I'm not trying yeah. to go down that yeah. road, but yeah. like my point is like, <laughs> you're on the Enormicast. What the fuck is wrong with you? Well, like, totally. Yeah, I but like, bugged you into doing it. Like, yeah, that's how I work. And, deg- and I'm all about that concept. It's my own little right. coin term of the degrees of hypocrisy where you got to just own your shit and be like, I might've said this once and now I'm saying this. And that's just like, I got to recognize that I'm going to step on my own feet a couple of different times throughout this life and like be gentle about it and be humble about it and like learn and evolve. And I just think that the Alpine climbing thing is funny where it's like, you know, you we're all just building upon what somebody else has done. If we can improve upon the style of what has been done in the past, like that's moving the ne- the needle of progression forward. Right. And like, I don't want to get on some kind of anybody to call it out and be like some high horse of like style or whatever else. But I do think that's, that's the whole point, you know, like to not bring down the mountains to your needs, but to like meet them where they're at and continue to evolve and progress. And like, it's not just about, it's, it's not even a little bit about time to me. It's more about like the way in which you climb, right. In terms of just minimal impact and some part of that is like the joy, right? Like to do it joyfully and like with some element of humor, like that's good style. That means you got like the reserve to be like fucking bantering, you know, like we're leading the crux pitches on the Slovak and we're making up rap songs about each other. You know what I mean? Like that's good style, right? Or like not just like tag it. It's not like you slap the chains, right? Like topping out and being like, oh, like we could deal if we need to, you know? So like our little style thing was, we did, we like went down to 14 and then we went back up to the rib cutoff and then descended back down to the East Fork and then up and over the part of the lower part of the casino to our kit and like skied back out with it all in one rotation. Cause like that was, we had, we had those reserves at the time and we could, con- we might not have done that. And maybe we would have like gone back to base camp or whatever and got it later. But that's like, for me, the needle of progression is like every climb I'd like to improve upon what I have done and what other people if you don't believe in that, the progression of style, then you kind of don't believe in mountain climbing. Right. And, and, I'm, and that's whether you're doing it or not. And I'm not doing it, you know, but I still, and even with rock climbing, like people are like, who cares who climbed the, the 15C or the 15D? And I'm like, I care. <laughs> I'm never going to climb that. Right. I'm still projecting 13A. It's fine. Yeah. But I still believe in the in that that part of the sport that progresses yeah and you know i also you know we just i just put out an interview with with drew halsey who's you know the heavier climber and he he, you know he's like psyched to try to project 510 i also believe in that totally but i i can do the two things simultaneously that's like the the black and white thing that that bugs the shit out of me totally i can believe in what you guys do and i can also congratulate someone for for being guided up denali we can do both things absolutely but if you don't believe in the progression of alpine climbing stylistically then 
I don't know. It's just like there's a fundamental pillar there that you're not standing on for right. some and weird reason. You I know? think you kind of nailed it there a little bit by saying like break down the paradigm right. of the black and white. Because like right. I've been ever, somewhat hesitant to like outwardly speak about style and progression because I don't want people like nail me to the wall and for some ascent I might do in the future that l- might not have totally. the highest degree of style be like you're yeah. backsliding on your style stuff you know and well, like <laughs> and, and like it's like well yeah that's just what had to be done you know you're backsliding boy you're backsliding um i mean but i think that like you know in a lot of ways mark uh twite you know he did that he painted himself into that corner right you know that was his personality and i think he also found that when he was no you know personally physically or whatever or mentally you know he decided he was no longer progressing he bailed from the sport right you know and he climbs he climbs to a certain extent but he spent a long time not climbing we talked about that in the interview and that's the that's the sort of like danger you have if you put yourself on this pedestal and even personally like i must always progress which is the great debate in climbing like will you still climb when you can't climb harder I'm just saying it's like it's like an interesting totally. way to look at it and you seem to be more of the like let me just climb and like I'll do what I want. Yeah, <laughs> and and also I can like geek out on yeah. the needle of progression and like style and I totally hear you like Yeah. I care about the subtle nuances. Of, right. We were talking about podcasts earlier right. of like the little nuances of the sport that are going on. I was like, yeah, I kind of care. I don't like I care do that much. Right. It doesn't like keep me up at whether night. Whether I would be friends with you or not yeah. because you didn't like you right because you took an extra fuel canister on that route totally we can't be friends. But, but like also like <laughs> i don't know in to not belabor the the metaphor but the whole art comment right. like like a good friend of mine was is a phenomenal artist and like growing up he was a great artist and whatnot and he told me once i remember we're like we're looking at something that was just like lines and boxes and shit like that and he's like yeah, it's good art. And I was like, I think I could do that art. You know what I mean? Like, I think I could do that or whatever. But at the same time, he he taught me, he's like, there's good art and there's bad art. Like, you can be judgmental about the art form to a degree. Like, I say that like tongue in cheek, like, we don't judge each other's a sense. We don't, it's not like judgmental, but like, there's some degree of like reflection to then like continue to move forward. You know what I mean? And like, to move forward, sometimes we move backward, you know, like in, in, in my own climb, it's like sometimes I'm on my game and sometimes I backslide, you know what I mean? And like, and you got to just embrace the whole process and I'll hope to still be climbing and psyched. I mean, yeah, I'll still climb whatever to some degree because I just like being out there with people and like, yeah, being in the mountains, you know, the level of difficulty or the size of the wall, like right now that has, you know, and I'll, I'll paint myself in the corner and be like, it's not just all happy go lucky, whatever. Right. I just want to climb. I do kind of care about that. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. I'm more inspired right. to climb like a bigger, more challenging thing, right? Mm-hmm. And like I want to kind of like see how far it'll go, you know? With also one foot in the camp of like that progression to a point of like not coming home or that like full commitment to the craft of night naked, like on the biggest walls ever, without some level of reflection that that's not it either you know what i mean like there's some middle ground there that i think you can be in both camps you know so one of the things that um i find really fascinating about you because you've broke sort of a mold in the sense that you had this time here in montrose ridgeway listeners from around the world won't know where we are but it's um you know it's this like kind of mountain community slash like for a better word redneck community and you've you've you're had this foot in the skater world 
Um, but you've also had this kind of foot in this sort of country living Western slope, banging it out on on motos and and all this all this other stuff. So can you talk a little bit about like the sort of diversity of of viewpoints that you get from kind of having your foot in these different worlds versus like just the Patagonia clad, you know, climber types that most of us hang with most of the time. Yeah. I mean, to take it all the way back, like we were talking about earlier today, growing up in Ridgeway before it was really like a hub of outdoor centric folks, like all my buddies growing up were from ranching backgrounds or construction backgrounds and, and like just working class folks living in the back like in the backwoods, basically, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And also my godmother who has a, had horses and shit like that over in Norwood. I spent a lot of time growing up with her out there, which is, you know, for saying Ridgeway is like kind of backwards, like Norwood's yeah. on like a bit of another level, you right, know? Right, right. It is now nowadays too, because Ridgeway's changed a lot. Right. From but, when you were growing up here, but. Totally. So there was always that growing up where like, I recognized, you know, that there was no point in like only hanging out with people of a like-minded reality, you know? And to be honest, like I just kind of got along with those guys better, you know, like, like at the end of the day, getting out in the mountains and ripping around and riding horses or climbing, like you're having a similar experience, you know? And so we all resonated on that and that, that nature, that demeanor, like that just kind of suits me a little bit. A lot of it stemmed just from growing up, like who right. who I was around, you know right. what I mean? And then it's kind of like carried on through where like I kind of get a little bit uncomfortable around just climbers, you know what I mean? Like, because we like you can live and breathe something and not want to talk about it. You know what I mean? Like all of the time. <laughs> Here <laughs> or, we are like an hour and a half into a podcast no, about climbing. Sorry. No, no, totally. But like <laughs> I didn't try to change the subject here. I want it noted. That's cool. No, noted, noted. <laughs> We're going into country living roots. But that whole like culture, for lack of a better words, I've been surrounded by it. It suits me. Do you bring it to climbing at all? You think? I mean, do your guys, your your boys accuse you of that a little bit? Well, so funny enough, like, we're like, so Rob and Sam and I climb together quite right. a bit, the three of us. Right. And like Rob Sam. Smith. Yeah, Rob Smith. And Sam is from the Olympic Peninsula in Washington okay. from like a similar kind of vibe, okay. like pretty redneck and all his buddies. And, and like Rob grew up in like Southern California and then lived in like, but he now he lives in Chamonix. You know right. what I mean? Like Rob's cut yeah. from a little bit of a different cloth right. and like. He always gives us a, you know, we're like mostly wearing camo and like like listening right. to country music on you expeditions. You can taste the notes in his wine. <laughs> well, totally, <laughs> totally. No, I shouldn't put it, right, but it's just right, like, right. but that's also an extension of this right. idea of just like getting along with everybody right. because otherwise you won't have any friends, you know? Well, Jackson's a freaking welder, right? Well, totally. And that that style, sure. Like we bring that style, right? It's like a little bit of like, a little bit cowboy, a little bit loose, quite calculated, founded on like hard work and banging your head against the wall until you get it done and going to the job site, getting it done. You know, like I, I do think there is some aspect of that in the climbing and certainly like the type of climbing that has attracted me. Like I've certainly probably never been called like the most graceful climber, you know, but by just determination and like hard work and a willingness to like put in the effort, those principles apply to like working on the ranch, you know what I mean? Or like, and a lot of that, like those were, were, different types of jobs that I was brought up around, you know, like spent a bunch of time with my godmother over there and whatnot. And like, I found that in the type of climbing that we've been up to and, uh, and the guys that I run with, like, yeah, it's great. 
You dated the rodeo queen in high school. I did. I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> Barrel racing girls. <laughs> folks thanks for listening and thanks to mike for doing that nice face-to-face interview we met up in ridgeway we did a couple pitches ate some tacos i got to meet his mom some of his close friends it was a super nice day in ridgeway thanks to everybody for that not just mike if you want to follow mike he is an arcteryx guy there's a nice little film on their website a close-up with mike gardner Of course, he does have Instagram at Michael O. Gardner. And the cool thing about his Instagram is there's just as much skating content almost as climbing content. Plus, he's a ski jorist, jorer, however you call that. He uh, gets pulled behind horses and goes off ski jumps and stuff. If you don't know what that is, it's something we didn't really talk about in the interview. We, We went a lot of places in there. We just missed the ski joring. Interestingly, too, he was also rigging for the climb. Chris Sharma's TV project there. Yeah, the dude's all over the place. Okay, I'm going swimming. Yeah, I'm still in the closet. I I usually record these outros right after the intro, but I got to get out of the closet. So we'll see you guys back in Colorado. Don't forget to check your knots. No. I'll turn it off. Your lights are on, so I went to turn your lights off, and I realized the car was on. No way. So maybe it was Reese. Oh, no. Dude, he's not even high. <laughs> as far as I know, actually. <laughs> no. I should be smoking dope <laughs> to be doing something like that. <laughs> well, I ju- Oh, that's why I was. I jumped out to be like, oh, park right oh, there. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, shut his car off. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. I was so nervous that I left my car running. You can tell where we're about to. <laughs> Thank you.